we have some amazing ministers, amazing preachers right here in our generation's home. You guys know it. We are, we are blessed. And so I'm excited. I get to just listen to the wisdom from some of my brothers and sisters right here in Generations. And today I get to introduce to you uh, our very own Brenna Sanchez. Brenna is awesome. If you know Brenna, she is amazing. She is so brilliant. She's one of those people. I love her mind. She's one of those people I truly, I go to to go, what do you think about this? Like, how, like what, what do you think about what's happening? What do you think about the, what, what the Bible says? Like that? And I love, she always just has such a brilliant word uh, to say back. And it's just moved to the Lord. In so many ways, her whole life is just a, such a miracle to watch. She's one of our home life leaders. She's a great home life leader. Uh, she's like the coordinator of the stuff going on on Sunday morning. She does all kinds of stuff. And today, uh, you get to be blessed. Come on, Brenna. <laughs> Well, good morning. The Lord and Miss Pat already preached half my sermon. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to do my best to just add on to what's already happening today. If you uh, bring a paper Bible to church, turn to the last two verses of Matthew. Otherwise, tap to it in your phone. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came near and spoke to them and said, I have received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. And we know this as the Great Commission. Our pastor's on top of it. It's the Great Commission. But on that day, it was just a group of people on a mountaintop. So come with me back to ancient Jerusalem and imagine that you are one of these disciples on the mountaintop with Jesus that day. And Jesus says, okay, y'all come here. Before I leave, I need to tell you your new purpose in life, your new reason for being. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them what I've commanded you. I'm around if you need me. I feel like the disciples would be like, okay, great, while we have you. Could you maybe color in for us what you mean by make disciples? And Jesus says, all right. I'll see you later. And then he just leaves. Did he fulfill his promise to be with us always by sending the Holy Spirit? Yes. But did we get any more information from him on what make disciples means? I don't think so. So ever since the Great Commission and the mountaintop, we as humanity have been trying to fulfill the Great Commission with the somewhat limited information we were given. And I would say, I, I think everybody would agree that the first big effort, uh, you know, humanity-wide effort to fulfill the Great Commission kind of, kind of missed the point. So this is, this is the Crusades. <laughs> These gentlemen here have um, swords and spears, and they are following Jesus to, what, what was it about? It was like taking land 
from other people. Um, I feel like Jesus could not have been more clear about the sword issue. Um, so miss, missing the mark on all sides, I think everybody can agree, um, that one didn't work out. But there have been other crusades of different kinds, like Billy Graham. Billy Graham, hundreds of thousands of people can trace their salvation moment to one of these tents that Billy Graham would set up back in the day, or one of the stadium revivals that he would host internationally. Also, Mother Teresa. You don't have to be a rock star in a stadium to change the world and everybody know who you are. Mother Teresa lived a very humble life and the poor and the needy, serving the poor and the needy in Calcutta. She's now Saint Teresa of Calcutta. So these are big superstars. Others um, have employed tactics that I can only assume are just kind of hit and miss at best. These are the billboard people. We've all seen them. I don't know who they are, you guys. These are the billboard people. This one in the middle is from Times Square, and it says, if you can't see it, it says, to all our atheist friends, thank God you're wrong. <laughs> it's so funny, right? Um, is it witty? Is it pithy? Yes. Is it winning atheists to Jesus? Maybe not, you know? Uh, and I'd like to point out, I'm not actually throwing shade on the billboard people. Please nobody come up to me after and tell me about how your cousin was saved by the billboard people. I'm so glad that they were. And the one who says that it can't be done should not stop the one who is doing it, right? I'm not buying billboards. I assume that they continue to buy billboards because it's working. I just wonder about how effective this medium really is at the end of the day. Well, so what are we supposed to do then? How are we supposed to make disciples? Great question, I would love to tell you. So Jesus gave the Great Commission to these mountaintop disciples, which means they must have already had everything in their toolbox that they needed to be able to make it happen. But Brenna, you say, they lived in a much simpler world. Our world is particularly complex. And I think that's a fair point. Um, I mean, in their times, there was this one sort of massively powerful nation that considered itself the best at everything. And in their times, um, they were surrounded by this, this really kind of very permissive sexual ethic and morality. And, and in their times, totally different from us, uh, they, they suffered from, from really bad xenophobia, where they had this idea that the cultural other was going to come and take all of their resources. Their world was almost nothing like ours, right? No. We haven't changed a bit, have we? I will say the only functional difference between their world and our world is that they lived in an agrarian society, and we live in this post-technological revolution society. Because they were an agrarian society, Jesus used a lot of agrarian metaphors and parables in his ministry on earth. Because if he had come down and started talking to people about processing power and bandwidth, they would have had no idea what he was talking about. 
but I also think he used agrarian metaphors because they reflect how the natural world functions. They're intrinsic to the setup, and so they're timeless, right? We still live on the same earth as those mountaintop disciples. If we plant a seed just like them, that seed will grow. That seed will grow to be much larger than it was when it started, and that seed won't grow unless it's in the right conditions. So let's dig into one of the agrarian parables that Jesus told and see what we can learn about making disciples. And this parable, it actually appears in three Gospels, but I'm going to read the one out of Matthew. This is Matthew 13, 3 through 8. A farmer went out to scatter seed. As he was scattering seed, some fell on the earth, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where the soil was shallow. They sprouted immediately because the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it scorched the plants, and they dried up because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorny plants, and the thorny plants grew and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and bore fruit. In one case, a yield of 100 to 1, another case, a yield of 60 to 1, and in another case, a yield of 30 to 1. I think that there are two ways to find ourselves in this parable. One is kind of the obvious intended message to the people in ancient um, Israel, and that is, we're the soils. We find ourselves in this recitation of the four different types of soils. In our own hearts, we can block out the good news from taking root, or we can allow the cares of our lives uh, to choke out what would otherwise have grown, or we are good soil, and we grow accordingly. And if you're anything like me, you're sitting there thinking, well, I mean, I am obviously the good soil. Here I am in church. Here I am listening to a sermon podcast. That's clearly evidence that I am the good soil. Be careful. Jesus says, he explains later in Matthew, that the good soil means that you have heard, you have understood, you are bearing fruit and producing. So being good soil doesn't just mean, yay, I love Jesus. It means you are producing fruit. We have all been all four soils at some point in our lives. Sometimes we are all four soils all at once because your field may have a path over here and rocks over there and thorns over there and good soil right here in the different areas of your life where the word is trying to take root. So never just sit there and think my field is an amazing field. So that's the first and most obvious um, way that we can find ourselves in this parable, and certainly what was intended by Jesus when he was explaining the parable that we're the soils. But I think that the other way we find ourselves in this parable is that we are the farmer. You might say, but Jesus is the farmer. Yes. And we are Jesus's hands and feet. So we are also the farmer in this parable. And I think viewed in this way, it's a tougher way to view it because it puts more responsibility on us because we don't get to just think that Jesus was telling us there are four types of people and there's nothing you can do about it. 
There's going to be people who you plant the seed and it doesn't sprout, and that's not up to you. That's not your fault. Is that going to happen sometimes? Yeah. But what kind of a lousy farmer plants a seed before they've prepared the soil? So I don't think Jesus was saying there's nothing you can do to change a pathway into good soil. I think we have a job to do in cultivating the hearts of the people around us to prepare a way for the seed, which is the good news. So what do these soils look like in our society? The first Jesus points out is the pathway, the seeds that fell on the pathway. This is, Jesus says later in Matthew, this is whenever people hear the word about the kingdom and they don't understand it, the evil one comes and carries off what was planted in their hearts. I call this hearing without understanding, because that's what Jesus said. And I've came up with two sort of modern day examples of what that might look like when you encounter someone and you feel like they're not picking up what you're laying down. The first person who could have this type of soil in their heart is someone who's experienced some kind of trauma. They've been abused, period, um, and especially abused by professing Christians. Those people are, it wasn't you who did it, but they're not going to be picking up what you're putting down because their heart is completely paved over to hear any of that. And I'm, I'm not just talking about what I'll call bodily abuse because there's a couple of kids in the room. There's plenty of that happening in the church. Let's not ever make the mistake of thinking that the members of the church aren't human, that abuse is not our problem. It's happening. We have to just address it. <laughs> but this can also look like people who were ostracized or shamed for something they said or did or thought or wore or were. So without the work of cultivation, their hearts are going to stay paved over. You can throw all the seeds at them that you want. Their hearts are going to stay paved over. And I think the second, uh, my second example was uh, people who believe in what I'm calling the false dichotomy of faith versus science, as if there can only be one and it's a duel to the death between them. It's not. We know that. Um, but these are the kinds of people that uh, you're saying, hey, you just have to believe. But they're the kinds of people who say, if you can't prove it to me with observable fact, then it's not true, it can't be true, and I'm not going to believe it. I think those are people who have paved over their own hearts. They're not going to receive what you have to say. The second type of soil, we're going to talk about how to reach them in a second. I'm just pointing them out right now. Okay, so. um, the second type of soil is the rocky ground. People who hear the word and they immediately receive it joyfully. This is what Jesus says. But because they have no roots, they last for only a little while. And when they experience distress or abuse because of the word, they immediately fall away. Because we're not um, here in 2022 USA, we don't get persecuted systemically or by, by the government for being Christians. Um, I think everybody on the street, you would ask, like, oh, I'm a Christian, and they would be like, oh, that's fine. 
Nobody's oppressing us. So um, what I'm calling these in modern day times is the convenience believer. Where am I? There we go. The convenience believer. And these are people who, on a daily basis, they're not really interacting with God. If you asked them, they would totally admit that they believe in God. But there's nothing in their life that you're seeing that actually, like, backs that up. Until something scary happens. And then suddenly they're at church every week, and they're praying all the time, and they're reading their Bible, and they're furthering their relationship with God because something scary is happening and they need his help. And then God comes through because he is good and faithful. And then it's kind of just life as usual. This is the rocky soil. Fervent love in the hard times. In agreeing that, you, that God has uh, you know, the power to change things in their life. But then when the day-to-day life comes back into play, God's not really a part of it. That's what I call the rocky soil. Let's talk about the thorny plants. These are those, Jesus says, who hear the word, but the worries of this life and the false appeal of wealth choke the word, and it bears no fruit. I'm calling this the non-practicing Christian. And these are people who could at some point be in the sanctuary next to you. And they come all the time, but they're not involved because they're so busy. Or, you know, work's just really taking it out of them, and, and they just need some time to themselves, and they can't, they can't give money right now, just, just not right now, because we're saving up for something, and so that's where the money has to go. And uh, I have said all of these things at some point. And remember, so just a reminder, we can be any of the soils at any time. So if you're still sitting there thinking, oh, that's, I'm not a thorny soil, maybe not right now, but you have been, and you could be later. So this is what the soils look like in our day and age. So how do we cultivate them? How do we take a rocky soil to a good soil so that the seeds we plant can grow? Jesus told us in the Great Commission to teach his commandments, so let's start there. John 13, 34. I give you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. Love is an easy thing to say. We say it enough that sometimes it loses all meaning, and it's just a fun word to say. The love Jesus is talking about here, the love that is the Jesus love, is an active love. It's not thoughts and prayers. It's doing something. It's engaging with the person who needs that love in a way that makes sure they're taken care of. So what does Jesus love look like to the pathway soil? I think love looks like finding common interests and hanging out with them without an agenda. Let's get away from the idea, if we can, that if we are not creating converts on a daily basis, that we are somehow failing Jesus. This isn't a numbers game. Is it urgent? Yes. 
Do we want our fellow humans to go a single day more without knowing his love and mercy and power? No. But you can stop thinking that you have to always be closing and that you can't just have an authentic friendship with someone who's not interested in Jesus right now. Don't devalue the work of preparing the soil of their hearts. Even if you yourself never plant a seed, cultivation is valuable kingdom labor to make the way for someone else who gets to plant the seed. So don't devalue that work. You are allowed to be friends, actual friends with no other goal in mind, with people who are not Christian. I'm saying this, and my Mimi is in the back of my head like, no, you're not. (laughs) Bad company corrupts good character, and you cannot hang out with anybody who doesn't love Jesus. Um, So I love you, Mimi, but I'm going a different way. All right. If you are only friends, and this is why, because if you're only friends with non-Christians with the goal of turning them into Christians at some point, that's why you're befriending anybody, then that's not really cultivation. That's not changing the soil of their heart. That's just you, like, lurking in the background, waiting for the soil to change on its own so that you can throw a seed at it and then call it a day. Like, that's not... That's not cultivation. That's not how you do that. Should you hang out with people who believe differently than you to the exclusion of the people who believe the same things as you? No. Should people who don't share your beliefs share your bed? No. Wisdom should cover all of that. Wisdom's got your back on that. But you can have authentic friendships with someone who is not a Christian. If you are meant to be a light in dark places, then you cannot just hang out in a room with all the other candles. So for for pathway people, cultivation looks like authentic friendship. Let's talk about rocky soil, the convenience believer. Love looks like encouragement, reminding them every time you see them come back, reminding them of how God came through for them, how good and faithful he was to answer their prayers every time they pray them, which may not be very often, but keep reminding them. The more you remind them, they'll start remembering enough and start going to him more often. And eventually, they've tilled all the rocks out of their soil because they've remembered how good and faithful he is. I would like to start a petition to remove the term backslider from our collective vocabulary. Let's stop thinking that we need to have a pithy judgmental name for everything. And if you need a term, for example, for this type of person who is kind of in and out of church, um, super fervent at one point, and then you don't see them for several months, if you need a term for them, just call them rocky soil. Just call them rocky soil. Because that, at least, will remind you of your obligation to cultivate that soil with Jesus' love until eventually all of its rocks are broken up. And I would like to take this moment to remind you that I preach not as an expert in the subject, but as someone who is still actively trying to figure all of this out. 
Let's talk about the thorny soil, the non-practicing folks. I think that because these are, I would say these are people inside the building with you, right? These are people who are at church every week probably, but just, you know, not going any further, not bearing any fruit. And so if you are working hard, putting in the hours and bearing fruit as, you know, as much as you can with what you have, I think it's, it's easier to get more angry with the thorny soil people, thorny plant soil people, than it is to get angry with the other two. And so for them, we have to really dig down into the definition of what love is. Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous. Well, why do they get to stay home and say they're busy and I'm here every week making sure things go smoothly? It doesn't brag. Look at me and how awesome I am. Making, look at all the fruit I'm bearing. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaints. It isn't happy with injustice, but is happy with the truth. It puts up with all things, not some things. It puts up with all things. It trusts in all things. It hopes for all things, endures all things, and never fails. So that's your go-to with the person that you may feel like is sitting next to you right now (laughs) and not bearing any fruit. (laughs) Love is not... And I can't, I can't do a sermon on, on modern-day application of this parable um, of sowing and reaping uh, without saying that love is not a social media post. Because so many Christians are missing the point. <laughs> They're doing it wrong. It doesn't matter what generation you are. Boomer, Gen X, Millennial, I don't have a lot of Gen Z friends on social media, but probably maybe them too, I don't know. They're probably better at it than we are, right? Everybody's getting it wrong. If you pulled the definition of love from social media posts of many evangelical Christians, you would learn that love is outraged and disgusted. It's indignant and argumentative. It seeks to prove its own righteousness. It remembers the faults of everyone. It's quick to point fingers and assign blame, but takes no action. Love blocks someone it doesn't agree with. Now, y'all, I love social media. (laughs) I really do. I'm not here trying to say it's the evil of our time or that we should all get off of it. If you are someone who doesn't use social media, either because you're not interested or you've decided for your mental health that it's just better to not to, all of those things are valid, social media is not a requirement for life. But I really like it. (laughs) My favorite platform is TikTok. I, I feel like I'm maybe just a little bit old to be saying that, but I really like it. I really like it. Um, My content feed on TikTok is full of animal video voiceovers and parenting advice and 
people shoeing horses for some reason and people cleaning their houses and ADHD creators because my son and I are ADHD and counselors and people talking about trauma healing and people who are super angry at the church. Why would people who are super angry at the church be on my content feed, you ask? So the algorithm works like this. If you're watching something all the way through, TikTok is videos, in case you don't know, it's just videos. If you're watching a video all the way through, the algorithm goes, oh, hey, they liked that one, they're interested in that one, we're gonna give them more like that. I watch exvangelical and deconstructed people's videos all the way through, every time. Why? Because I love them. My heart is burdened with love for them. And I grieve for their lived experiences, the things that they've had to go through, and then the conclusions that they've drawn from them that I'm going, no, 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 that's not what it means. That's not what it means. I'm sorry you were hurt, but that's not what it means. Some people have a fire in them to reach the lost and underdeveloped countries, and others have a fire to teach children and feed families in our own communities. But me? Give me the snarky, angry ones who are finding solace in logic. I just want to love the snot out of them until they're just out of arguments. I noticed it first when I was watching their videos. My first instinct was to comment. And number one, apologize for everything they've gone through. Number two, tell them that not all Christians are like that. I promise, they're not. Take it from me, an unknown stranger on the internet. Not all Christians are like what you went through. Or number three, defend myself, even though they were not talking to me to begin with. But I've had to stop myself from ever commenting. Because if someone has gone so far as to post their opinion on social media, unless they're specifically inviting comment, like, hey, I'm trying to understand this, please help me out, post a comment below, my comment is not going to change their mind. And it's only going to make me feel better, which is not the point. It's not the point. So instead, I watch and I listen, I think, pray about the points that they make. Sometimes weeks, it goes around in my heart. Because I may not know that creator. I probably don't know that creator who's posting a viral video about how the Church of Jesus Christ has failed them. But that creator might be my neighbor. And I'm under obligation to be ready for that if that creator is my neighbor. And to not meet that person with all of my knee-jerk reactions in place. So this is my encouragement to you that if you are on social media, use your social media. Enjoy your social media. But make sure you are listening and learning more than you are trying to just reinforce your own position. Because social media is not an effective tool for either cultivation or sowing. We've talked about cultivating the soil, making the hearts ready. Now let's talk about the other part of being the farmer, which is scattering the seed. How do we sow? I have come up with three examples 
There are hundreds. But these are what I consider the big three. The first is we sow with our time. If you are a person like me with a full-time job, a spouse, a home, and children, you might laugh me off the stage when I tell you that you have time that you can sow. I'm not looking at Amy and Rick Beal. I'm not. They have so many kids, y'all. We need to go babysit their kids. I'm just putting that out there. You have time to sow, and it, because it doesn't have to be large chunks of time, right? This could be a weekly check-in text with a friend, someone you know is going through it, and just checking in, hey, haven't seen you in a minute. This could be a phone call. It could be just swinging by the house real quick and saying, hey, I was at Target and I found these for you here, love you. But it could also be large chunks of time. We like to talk about how small can we make our offering, right? But you could also give large chunks of time. Um, that could be you as an entire family deciding how you're going to go out and serve others. This could be coming to Rayford Hope every other Friday morning, bagging groceries, going to the apartments, and praying with people in our community, blessing their lives. This, it's super early. I'm not going to tell you it's not early. It's early. But it's worth it. Or this could be planning on coming to volunteer or participate in, if you have children, in community kids camp. The training for which, everybody pay attention, is on July 17th. And the dates for which are July 23rd and 24th. If you haven't planned your summer vacation yet, this is not the weekend to take it. You need to be here. You need to be volunteering. John and I did this uh, a couple of years ago. The last time we did one, John and I volunteered. And our son, Nico, was, I think, six at the time. So he got to experience it, and then we were assigned to the eight-year-olds. And at the time, by the end of the day, we were like, what even are eight-year-olds? We, <laughs> we hadn't had that experience yet. Nico's now nine, and so that makes me laugh. But uh, we had a fantastic time, super outside our comfort zone. We are not kids' church people. <laughs> when it comes to interacting with kids, I'm not any different than I interact with adults. I am not a kids' church person. But did I have a great time? Yes. Were those babies blessed because I was here? Yes. I believe so. Um, also, I think this is the last thing I'm going to say about this. Don't quote me. Dads and dudes, this is not a ladies' event. Sign up. Come volunteer. This, isn't, this also just isn't, just in case you don't know what we're doing here, this isn't just for our kids here at G Church. This is for every kid who wants to come in our surrounding community. And some of those babies don't know what it looks like to have men and women serving God together. Some of those babies don't know what it looks like to have a dad some of those babies don't understand their value yet, and you could have it in you to help them understand that. So, I'm going to get off my soapbox, but y'all need to come do it. Because sowing your time, it doesn't happen by accident. You don't just, like, accidentally give your time away. 
unless you're scrolling TikTok. But if time is your biggest resource right now, make sure you're intentional about using it to sow into the kingdom. Thing number two to sow is effort. I, I put this as a separate one than time. Technically, if you are putting effort into something, you are also putting time into it. But you can give time all by itself, by just sitting with someone or calling or texting them. Effort is like, hey, my pipes froze. Can you come fix them? That's effort. It's using your particular set of developed or developing skills for the benefit of those around you. So that could be a cavalry of people who ride around fixing busted pipes. That could be you know more about computers than the person next to you. And they need access because they're working from home and their whole system broke down and they don't know how to fix it, so you go and you fix it for them. It could be cooking a meal or smoking a pork butt for someone who is having a hard time caring for themselves. And finally, third thing. Y'all really didn't think you were going to get out of a sermon about sowing and reaping without talking about money. So strap in. Get excited. We're talking about money. You have to give your money. Because it is the chosen form of human transactional interaction. If we had decided to trade banana leaves, you would have to give your banana leaves. Because food and shelter and water all cost money. Can God provide those things? Absolutely. But remember, we are also the farmer. And we have to provide those things too. These are all the seeds that you scatter into the kingdom. Malachi 3.10. Also, you can't get away from this verse when we're talking about money. <laughs> Bring the whole tenth part into the storehouse, so there might be food in my house. Please test me in this, says the Lord of heavenly forces. See whether I do not open all the windows of the heavens for you and empty out a blessing until there is enough. Notice that it doesn't say, bring me everything you have so that there will be enough. All he's asking for is 10% in this verse, right? And then he will make sure that there is enough. When I read the word enough, I went, oh, just enough? But I think our English language understanding of what enough means is the same thing as saying almost not enough. Enough is like just barely scraping by, almost like if you had just a little bit less, you would not have enough. That's what we think when we say enough. But when Jesus fed the 5,000, they all ate their full, their fill, they were full. They ate their fill. And then they had baskets of food left over. God's definition of enough is full and with leftovers. And he promises this when we bring only 10% of our resources, that we will be full and with leftovers. Because God operates on a principle that I'm calling mustard seed math. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, very tiny, tiny seed, you can say to this mountain, move from there to here, here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Does this mean that you can actually 
move a mountain. If you were a Sunday school kid like me, and you heard this verse, you immediately started to faith things with your mind, trying to say, okay, I have faith like a mustard seed. I'm going to move that chair over there now. He probably wasn't actually saying that. There, because practically, when, are you, when do you need to move a mountain? Nobody needs to move a mountain. But Jesus would use hyperbole to make a point. And the point is, mustard seed math is the principle that a small amount placed in God's hands can do big things. We are responsible for cultivating the soil, like we've talked about, by practicing his commandment. We are responsible for sowing the good news into others with our time, effort, and money. But we are not responsible for the yield after planting. Jesus said, sometimes you get a 30 to 1 yield, sometimes you'll get a 60 to 1 yield, and sometimes you get a 100 to 1 yield. But the yield isn't up to you. You can plant a seed, you have no idea how many bell peppers that seed's going to give you. So that's, all, that, that's, that's God's part. He's told us, I'm going to pour it all out until there's enough. But you have to bring the seed. So don't be disheartened. This is where Miss Pat started preaching my sermon a little bit. Don't be disheartened when your cultivation and sowing don't yield much that you can see. Don't stop cultivating and sowing just because sometimes you don't see that quick, satisfying return. Sometimes what you have planted is a tree, and you may not get to see it fully grown. While we're talking about yield, it makes sense to mention um, that mustard seeds grow mustard plants. Galatians 6, 7, etc. The Bible says, make no mistake, God is not mocked. A person will harvest what they plant. Those who plant only for their benefit will harvest devastation from their selfishness. But those who plant for the benefit of the Spirit will harvest eternal life from the Spirit. If you are seeing that after you sow what you thought to be mustard seeds, that your field is full of poison ivy and no mustard at all, the problem is not the soil. The problem is not the yield or any other issue we talk about today, it's that you weren't sowing what you thought you were. If you are telling people about Jesus and they are immediately rejecting Jesus, you are not putting out what you think you are. Check your seeds. Assuming your seeds are in good order, be sure not to compare your planting method to anybody else's. You can look at what someone else is doing and be inspired by them, but never think that you are failing because you don't look the same as someone else. For example, my dad and I both have a garden. I live here in coastal Texas. My dad lives in southern Wisconsin. This is a picture of my dad's garden on June 6th. So this is this week. It's huge. It takes up most of his yard. You can walk between the rows. My garden is a four by four planter box. I am not amazing at gardening yet. I feel like, I'm, so I'm, I'm going to be 38 in August. I feel like these are like the really good gardening years I'm heading into. So I'm not good at it yet. I started small. Um, but if I compared my garden to my dad's June garden, my efforts look laughably small. 
But here's my dad's garden. Oh, it's, it flipped on its side. You can see it. It's a patch of dirt. This is my dad's garden in May. This is my garden in May. If dad had compared his garden to mine in May, all of his space couldn't compete with the fact that mine was already bearing fruit. And certainly his garden couldn't compare with mine on April 22nd when it was 47 degrees in southern Wisconsin. Though his capacity is bigger, I have a longer growing season. Your capacity determines the size of a thing that you can do. Your growing season is your ability to sustain what you are doing. And let's not forget position too, right? Because I can't grow lettuce in the summer here in Texas, but my dad can't ever grow citrus or avocado. You may be small in resources, but you can sustain your effort or time or giving. You may not be able to do something for a long time, but you can go big in the season that you have. You may only grow lemons and you may only grow lettuce, but God uses all of it for his glory. Because we serve the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is another agrarian metaphor that means unlimited, endless resources. So let's not get tired of doing good. Because in time, we will have a harvest if we don't give up. Let's pray. To the Lord of the harvest, we humbly bow and submit ourselves, soil and seed, time, effort, money, capacity, and seasons, to you, who are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Multiply what we have to offer as you always do, so good and faithful as you are. May your word take root in our hearts, and may we bear fruit this week to the glory of your name. Amen.